0: Hello and welcome back to the Conflict Skills Podcast. I'm your host, professional mediator, Simon Good. In the episode today, I'm going to be talking about three underrated skills or approaches, I suppose, that I find incredibly undervalued because they're so effective at dealing with conflict. And each of these different tools or skills can be used both in workplace conflict situations, in parenting and family conflict Or even with your partner, you know, in marriages, that type of stuff as well. I think the reason that I wanted to prepare a podcast on this particular topic is that I've noticed there's a little bit of a discrepancy between what people want when they arrive for conflict resolution training workshops, like when I'm running them for organisations or I'm doing a coaching session or something with a not-for-profit with volunteers, for example. Uh, They often arrive, I think, wanting the a better ability to control other people (laughs) they want to almost see themselves as a cop and what they want is to be able to pull their team into line for example if they're a manager and so it's more or less they want to get to this particular outcome and not so much worry about people's feelings along the way and then ironically i tend to come from a position of Well, we do have emotions and feelings and people's perception is a lot more complex and complicated than you might initially assume. And the process of influencing people has to inherently be a lot more indirect than many people anticipate. And it seems to be the way that we're wired. If someone says do something, it literally can increase our desire not to do it. Easy for you to say you're not the one going through it, that kind of thing. Uh, And on the flip side, when we get told not to do something, man, it can feel good to do it. Those particularly juicy swear words when you're a young person growing up and, you know, the first time you get to use a well-placed profanity. Oh, it's just so pleasurable, isn't it? Like, <laughs> and it's helpful. It's like a release of stress and a release of some of those negative emotions and all the rest of it. But, you know, your teacher telling you don't use this word, I'm sure immediately there was a knee-jerk reaction in most people in the class to be like, what would it feel like if I d- did say it? And so there's this incongruence because people arrive for training thinking that I'll give them the magic recipe for influencing people. But what I'm actually often doing is talking about the importance of self-awareness and self-regulation first. And then as you interact with people, understanding that what we're really doing is co-regulating each other's nervous systems. And if we can approach conflict in a way that's very open, that we're not stuck to a particular course of action or that our value is necessarily right and other people should understand how correct we are. Instead, if we approach these types of conversations in a more open way, what I've noticed is that ironically, it tends to lead to a much more smoother functioning team, a much more effective leader in terms of leadership style and communication. Organizations that become much more capable at dealing with things like change or uncertainty or unexpected elements that are outside of their control. And so it's almost like once you let go of the thing that you're looking for, ironically, it suddenly becomes attainable. And so each of these different skills that I'll talk through next, it's sort of related to that. And I suppose I wanted to give a little bit of a preamble because some of them might not be necessarily what you would expect is the area that you need to focus on. So the first skill I think that's particularly underrated is the ability not to take things personally. Some people seem to just have this natural capacity to distance themselves through events that happen, whereas other people they just get swept away in the moment. These waves of negative emotions, panic, distress, anger and frustration sort of wash over them and a lot of the time their behaviour is just automatic. And I think part of the challenge there is that they take these things personally. When they don't get a reply from a particular person in an organisation, they feel insulted. They don't necessarily assume that maybe the person's busy and it's got nothing to do with them. In reality, I think most of us know deep down that people do not care about us as much as we think that they do. (laughs) We're, of course, very focused on other people's opinions of us, but... People do not spend most of their time thinking about you. If they're upset about something that you've done, they're really only interpreting that in the way that they've been conditioned. It's all of their experiences leading up to this point have meant that they make a particular meaning. And you've had a different set of experience. And so, of course, you'll make a different meaning about that. But people get so tied up in knots Desperate to make sure that other people understand their intentions or agree with them that this particular thing should happen or shouldn't happen, or this is what we should be focusing on, or this is okay or not okay. Despite very often, by the way, being incredibly hypocritical, like someone can argue till they're red in the face about why they support this or that, but then they don't actually put any effort or energy or resources or money or time into that. And so you have to think, well, how important is it if all you're doing is just continuing again and again to bang on about how important it is to you? It seems like this is probably more about earning brownie points or ego massaging or something else that might be going on. And so once you can understand that other people's opinion of you is all just based on their conditioning – Combined with how they're feeling at the time, these two things influence literally the lens that they can use to perceive you, then you tend to not take their opinion as personally because it's just based on their history. It's just them kind of playing out their conditioning and their programming. And the same is true for events. When something bad happens, a lot of us take it personally. This is exactly the kind of thing that keeps happening to me. Oh, here we go. What else can go wrong today? Um, Of course, events happen and there'll be challenges and drawbacks and problems and pain and costs, etc. that are associated with it. But there's opportunities for learning and growth and it's life to some extent is that things will go wrong. And so if you expect perfection or nothing to ever go wrong, you're setting yourself up to be incredibly disappointed and stressed when things do And so in terms of the events and things that might happen to us, one of the things that can help us not to take it as personally is simply to remind ourselves that there will be a good and bad in all of these different things that happen in life and acknowledge and validate and accept the negative side of it. It's making me stressed. It's making me upset. It's not fair. It's not right. There's grief. I really miss this person, this kind of thing. But then on the flip side, it's recognizing what are the positive elements in this same moment or same event. The time that we got to spend with this person before they passed away. The fact that at least I don't have to deal with this horrible, difficult boss every single day at work. It's more of a once a week meeting that I'm dreading at the moment. We can almost reorient our thinking to focus more on the positive, develop practices like gratitude, which train our brain that when these types of things happen, we inherently don't take them personally. So for you, if that's something that you find yourself struggling with, I'd really take this maybe as an opportunity to pause and think about, well, what kind of practices, like what kind of habits, what kind of tools do you need to create that distance? It might be writing down five things that you're grateful for at the start of the day. It might be taking a few deep breaths when you get that annoying email from someone before you write back. It might simply be deciding to let something go and just feeling what that feels like and the frustration and the emotion and just let it go and notice how long does that negative feeling stick around for? It's certainly there at the beginning, but you might notice that it's actually only 30 minutes of, you know, discomfort, so to speak, when you're feeling worked up and upset. And then after that, you went and got some lunch and you felt a lot better and you focused on something else in the afternoon. Whereas if you do buy into the conflict and write it back because you have taken it personally, a lot of the time we're actually creating a rod for our own back because that's extra drama and extra headaches and extra issues that we're going to need to deal with down the track. The second skill that I wanted to sort of touch on is the ability to act like things don't bother you. So first I talked about not taking things personally personally. The second skill that I think is equally important is the ability to remain composed in the face of adversity. It is to hold on to a poker face, I suppose, particularly when the other person's becoming more erratic and volatile and emotional and unreasonable. We're stuck there. We only have two options. It's to respond in kind And a lot of the time that just creates a real negative spiral that sucks us both into it as we both get more and more upset and and we start to hurt each other's feelings or interrupt each other and then we become more and more frustrated. Um, So the ability just to remain composed, particularly in the face of somebody else losing it, it's really the only hope that we have of getting to a positive outcome in the moment But even if we're not able to, like the other person loses it and spits the dummy and has a massive tantrum and then storms out of our office or something and we don't get to see them again until tomorrow, at least we haven't made it worse in the short term. Whereas a lot of the time if we do act like things are bothering us, it tends to just create extra drama. So for me, that actually includes things like expressing emotion. I think very carefully about when and how to do that if I decide that it's important. And it's usually longer-term relationships. Like I might talk to my wife about how I'm feeling about something, but with a client and they're talking about rescheduling a training workshop or something, you know, I'm feeling frustrated, but I just i am unable to see the benefit of that when I'm interacting with the client I just find it so much more effective to outline the boundaries and expectations, like, yes, I'm happy to reschedule this time around, but I just want to be clear that if we end up needing to do it again and you're not able to give me, you know, 48 hours notice or something, that this will be the cancellation fee that applies. Um, If it's a longer term, like my business partner, then yes, I'll talk to them about what's going on for me. But I think the ability to act like things are not bothering you and just remain composed is such a superpower. And again, this is something that we can train ourselves to do. We can improve our capacity for doing this. A regular meditation practice, for example, is a really effective way of stopping our brain from being so scattered and getting swept away with the waves of difficult emotions that come and go and be more able to focus on our goal and the thing that's important to us in any particular situation that we're dealing with. So I think in terms of that capacity to improve our ability, it's really about self-awareness and self-regulation. Being aware of how those external events impact us, which then naturally I think leads to the ability to regulate our own emotions, take a quick break when needed, calm yourself down when you're feeling worked up, anchoring yourself in the room if your thoughts are running away from you, that kind of thing. And finally, the third skill that I wanted to talk about is probably the least expected. It's the ability to give 51%. This probably sounds a little bit goofy, so I'll explain what I mean by that. I recently was listening to a lecture by Jordan Peterson, who I, I really like. I've, I've learned so much from him. It's been incredibly helpful for me in my own life, as well as a lot of people I know. And in one of the lectures that he was discussing, it was about kind of like our options for dealing with conflict. But he was talking about like the prisoner's dilemma What should you do if you're locked in a relationship with someone and they're just refusing to budge? It's all like take, take, take. Maybe a situation where you feel like you can't trust someone and they're asking you to forgive them and can you just give them another chance and you've been through this dance three or four times now and so you're wondering whether or not this is actually something that's helpful or not or a staff member who's just being really rude and obnoxious and you're needing to decide, well, how should I respond here? In a lot of these situations, we don't want to get stuck. And so one of the options that we have is to simply shut down. It's to protect ourselves, protect our own boundaries. And that's, of course, perfectly understandable when we've got someone that seems determined to encroach on our boundaries and push us around at every possible opportunity. But that pattern of shutting down and shutting down and shutting down, what it tends to result in in relationships is... A reciprocal shutting down. This is often the point where uh, distance is created and maybe even if it's a friendship or a romantic relationship, you might find that the extra distance that's created by this gradual shutting down on both sides ends up meaning that you lose the connection that you once had. And so that approach of if this is risky, I need to protect myself. It is naturally, I think, hardwired into humans. We of course want to avoid threats. And so when we're dealing with someone who's being to some extent abusive or unpredictable or unreliable or whatever, we want to protect ourselves from that. But if this is an ongoing relationship that we have, all that's going to result in is probably an an increasing of the negative, an increasing of the problems. And so... The alternate path, and I mean, you can call this the higher path if you want to. It's like holding on to hope, holding on for the opportunity that things might still change. And unfortunately, in most situations, it's not possible to give the other person a forced frontal lobotomy and change their brain structure. So the first thing that you'll actually need to change is yourself. And what that will mean is instead of following through with your natural inclination of shutting down and protecting yourself, it's giving the other person another chance. It's being reasonable in the face of an unreasonable situation. If somebody's yelling and criticizing you and the work that you've done and your team, it's avoiding the temptation to jump straight in and correct the ledger about what they've said or explain all of the problems that they've actually caused and how their team was responsible for a number of the different changes that ended up impacting on your staff and their capacity to meet deadlines, etc. It's like there's always an invitation to join them in this negative frame and this negative worldview and attack 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 and you know everyone's out just looking after themselves, etc. But the other pathway is to be generous in situations where it might not necessarily be logically warranted. But when I say it's not logically warranted, I'm really just talking about the short term. If we're not sure if we can trust someone, it probably makes sense to look after yourself. So if you're setting up a business with someone, you know, you might give yourself 51% ownership so that you can still make decisions. But if we approach relationships like this, it in many situations, I think prevents trust from being built and We tend to develop then a reputation, whether it's just with that person, like the way that they remember us and the way that they think about us, or other people seeing all of this is that we have a reputation for looking after our self-interests because that's what we've done. Whereas if you're generous in the short term, you give 51%, as long as that extra 1%, that extra chance, that extra opportunity to prove themselves, that extra bit of support being polite, even if they're yelling at you and screaming at you, if you can give that 1%, like stay on the phone for five minutes when the other person's being abusive, even though technically this does meet the criteria that your team leader wouldn't be upset if you ended the call, I think that that sort of creates this positive wave that this is going to sound super woo-woo, but it's almost like it goes out into the universe Practically speaking, I think literally it's the chemistry in your brain changes slightly when you decide just to forgive someone or be compassionate or be generous when it's not warranted. As long as you've got a boundary or a limit in place, both internally in how you're planning, but also maybe communicating that with them, I think that can work perfectly fine in some situations. But what that means is that you'll start to develop a reputation for generosity, and kindness, and being a team player, and looking after other people, and having this collaborative type of mindset. And I think in work, that often pays incredible dividends as leaders are looking for potential people to promote, uh, or even just in terms of the time it takes for us to influence other members of our team. If there's something important to us, and people remember you as being generous, and kind, and forgiving, and whatever it might be, then and you ask them for a favor or you explain to them a, a challenge that you're having and you're wanting some support, you're so much more likely to get it at that stage. So I think in the short term, particularly when we're dealing with jerks or bullies or bosses that are incompetent or decisions that we're just not happy with, people sometimes can, what would the what would the phrase be? It's like they, they choose the wrong hill to die on. They really argue and go for the jugular and be super assertive and firm and look after themselves and protect themselves in a very understandable way. And logically that makes a lot of sense. But longer term, I think the way that that impacts on the individual relationship of the person that you're dealing with and particularly the reputation and the way that other people see see you, not to mention your own emotional well-being and your own ability to be grateful and focus on the positive versus always thinking that there's a threat behind every corner and that you need to really protect yourself. I think finding that balance is just incredibly important, but the scales should be shifted slightly to the more generous side. (laughs) It's things like sharing joy when someone else has a good event happen at work and there's that natural knee-jerk reaction of, why not me? (laughs) You know, I'm better than them. I've put in more effort than them. Why am I always overlooked? And just pausing and recognizing that negative inclination but deciding to focus more on the positive. Good on them. You know, they've worked really hard for this and that's going to make a massive difference for their family. And then focusing on your planning and the things that are much more within your control and what you can do to get your own promotion rather than dwelling on the negative. And then when you're dealing with someone who's encroaching on your boundaries, whatever that looks like, I suppose it's probably a combination of those three skills that I've talked about. Not taking things personally, remaining composed and acting like things don't bother you, even in situations where they might be, and choosing and finding the opportunities to give 51% where possible, and just observing how does that affect your relationships? the outcomes that you're getting from the conflict and the difficult conversations that you're dealing with and how you're feeling about conflict, you might notice that as you start to really focus on these, that those two, I think, outcomes that people often come looking for, the higher level of confidence and the higher level of competence for dealing with conflict, these are, I think, the natural place that we end up with. So thank you so much for listening as always. Again, if you'd like to find out more about my training courses or me, you can look at my website at simongood.com. And otherwise, all the best for the different conflict situations that you're dealing with, particularly as we enter into the crazy end of year period where I think nerves are frayed and a lot of people are feeling very stressed and overwhelmed you're experiencing so many different challenges at the moment in terms of cost of living and relationship challenges and family conflict and youth and adolescent mental health and corporations increasing control over the world by manipulating political systems and horrible taxes and inflation robbing you of options. I mean, there are so many different negative challenges that we're experiencing at the moment, but similar to how I talked about earlier, it's like, Let's find the opportunities to focus on the positive, to not take these things personally and to remain composed, strategic, future-focused, solution-oriented at least as much as possible. And where we're not able to do that and we drift down more into the negative, rumination, worrying, obsessing, clinging very tightly to control, it's, I suppose, being compassionate with ourselves then as well. Maybe going a layer deeper and figuring out what might be going on And what do we need to do to look after ourselves moving forward? Bye for now.